now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. The forensic advancement season of Just Science will focus on many areas that challenge forensic leadership within the community. The majority of these interviews were recorded at the 2018 ASCLAD Annual Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia. If you have an interesting case and you would like to be a guest on our next season, recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at forensicscoe.org forward slash just science podcast. In episode one of the forensic advancement season, Just Science interviews John Collins, an instructor and consultant from Critical Victories, and Jay Henry, laboratory director at the Utah Department of Public Safety. Listen along as our guests discuss how crime labs can create environments that are more appealing to the younger generation of professionals and what challenges directors are having with retention. Stay tuned to find out the delicate balance of casework completion and retention strategies. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, funded by the National Institute of Justice. We're here this week at the American Society of Crime Lab Directors meeting in Atlanta, talking to various folks who are giving talks related, generally speaking, to leadership dynamics. And we have with us two folks who are definitely leaders in the field of leadership in forensic science. First, Mr. John Collins, former lab director in Michigan, now instructor and consultant with Critical Victories. He works not only uh, to consult about HR issues, but to coach, teach, write, speak on the development of forensic science employees and organizations. Also with us is the current lab director in the Utah Department of Public Safety, Mr. Jay Henry. Jay is the director in Utah with responsibilities over operations training, curriculum development, legislative advocacy, leading Utah's only full-service forensic providers comprising three labs, 50 employees, 140 law enforcement agencies, and a population of 2.8 million people and growing. Welcome, John. Welcome, Jay. Hey, John. Good to be with you. Thank you. John is now a record holder. He is now a third-time guest on Just Science. Now, what you all are presenting here this week is very specific about development of the people within laboratories. And there's been a lot of work done on personal development in forensic laboratories for many, many decades, but we're not necessarily getting as far as we would like. Yeah, and we have a problem, and that is, is that sometimes the learning that we do in the area of leadership or the discipline of leadership, if you will, doesn't necessarily always translate into the types of behaviors and progress that we want to see in the laboratories. And that's a whole other challenge. You know, you can attend conferences like this. You can go to workshops. You know, in our careers, Jay and I have been to hundreds of leadership workshops and seminars and heard speakers. But actually getting people 
to have that have an impact where they're utilizing these skills in a laboratory environment is another matter. And our talk tomorrow is really spe is specific to how does this affect our young people particularly, the new forensic scientists coming into the laboratory so that we can create a culture that makes foren the forensic laboratory sciences an attractive career for young college graduates and then have them want to stay for a while. And it's difficult too. I mean, it's it's that retention aspect because a lot of folks. I mean, it's very trendy now to start into forensic science in college and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it isn't always translating into hey, we're getting like people who want to go into forensic science and stick with it over a complete career. It's also a very stressful occupation. Yeah, definitely. And we've had pretty good success with recruiting people uh, because of that interest and because of that trend. Another side challenge is trying to get people through backgrounds. So you spend a lot more time recruiting and getting them in, but we're able to get them in. That The biggest thing for us right now is being able to retain them for long term, to give them a long term career in our laboratory. And part of that, I think, is a compensation issue for us in Utah. And I think it's a compensation issue probably for the whole United States, I think, is, is an issue that we really need to to somehow address state legislators, locals, they really need to kind of take that seriously. And I think they've looked at some areas, but forensic science has probably been one of those overlooked areas for us. So um, we're able to get them in, we're able to train them. Unfortunately, they get put into the machine, if you will, of casework grinding day to day. And as John kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, it, you give them training, but then it's almost as if they have no time or extra incentives to really apply that and make these changes and develop that career. What are some of the other things that are, you know, compensation is obviously a real one. I remember, uh, and I won't mention which laboratories, it's like, I, I don't know if I even want to train folks because <laughs> I trained them so they can go off and go into a commercial, you know, medical laboratory environment yeah. or something else like yeah, or, that. Or leave the whole career, yeah, leave the whole field. There are other challenges, too, that are preventing folks from staying for longer periods of time. Are you seeing some other things? Uh, I mentioned the stress issue. What other things are there? You know, it may be just the routineness of it. You know, if you take them, and, and we're really changing, and I, and I don't want to say the old days, but a long time ago, there was probably more of a generalist approach to it, so that if you were an analyst, you worked in drug chemistry for a while, and maybe if that got a little tiring, you could try serology. You know, you went to there, and then maybe you learned firearms. So you could learn multiple disciplines. Now, if we get somebody in there with the caseload demands, we need them to work in this particular area for a number of years to give us kind of that return on that investment. So it's hard for us trying to find a, a mechanism to give them the variety of, say, another discipline, you know, to keep them engaged. So you're always trying to balance that casework with trying to retain them. Yeah, John, that's kind of a problem, isn't it? I mean, I mean you look more broadly at somebody. To some extent, there are people who might really love the routine of it, but they aren't necessarily the best scientists, right? For sure, and you know, Jay just made me think of a, I'm not gonna say her name, but I have a coaching client right now that spent a lot of time in DNA and is now in a management position. And she said something to me during one of our sessions that really struck me, and I've thought about it many times since. She said that there was a time when I was doing DNA casework where I really felt connected to the case. Like, I felt like I was doing something important. I was able to talk with the investigators. You know, I was able to, I knew what was going on in the case. I knew about the victim and I knew about the suspect and this kind of. And she said that there came a point 
where it felt like the soul of the work, that was her exact words, the soul of the work went away. It was more about volume throughput. And she said, before I got into management, as my career in DNA ended, I started to not even know anything about the case anymore. I didn't know about you know, why the work that I was doing mattered to somebody. One of the great fears that I have, John, is that forensic science, if it ever becomes a profession where people don't feel intimately connected to the meaning of their work and why it's important to society, it's going to be increasingly hard to find people to go into this profession. I don't think the secret is out yet, quite honestly. Yeah. that forensic science has become as kind of like a high volume assembly line kind of operation as it has. And when the word does get out, I think fewer people are going to find it to be an attractive profession and then we're going to have a problem. And I'll just, I'll finish that comment by saying that there's a lot of talk, for example, about human factors and cognitive bias, which is obviously very important. You and I have talked about this, John. But it's the information that makes the job rewarding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what are you really accomplishing here? Yes, we can try to make forensic science you know, more antiseptic, okay? Mm -hmm. But are we damaging the soul of the profession to the point that people aren't going to want to be in it? Or if we get people in it, they're not going to give us 100% effort because it's just not that important to them. So it's tough. I love that, the soul of the profession, yeah. because it does get lost, doesn't it? I mean, but you say it's easy to recruit. It's because people are attracted to that aspect of it. They, you know, the soul of the profession matters to these young people who are interested in forensic science. Yeah, some of us call it the chase. You know, it's like you're involved in the case from you like know, the inception. Um, it used to be, for DNA analysts, it was cradle grave, meaning the case came in, you got the kid out, you did the assessment. Some smaller labs, you might have even checked in the evidence, you know, in, in the older days. And then you worked the DNA case and you went all the way to the end. You consulted with that investigator all the way through. Eventually the prosecutor would come back. You'd have some case consultation with that person. It was a back and forth. And you may have even seen some of the news clippings or something like that. So you're kind of aware of some things going on in, in the background. But you were more actively involved in that case. And the prosecutor or the, and the investigator was talking to you to say, what does that mean? Should I test this sample or should I go look at this? And so it was a deeper engagement. Right now, it's just cut the swab and go to DNA because it's the faster way to do it. It's probably one of the better approaches for backlogs and things like that. But trying to find that balance of giving the, the meaning to an analyst to get them involved in the chase and feel part of the chase is got to be there if we're going to keep these people engaged. And I got an idea from John, I like the way he put it. He says, you know, there's something about teaching an analyst not to be just an analyst to test DNA or to be an expert in sexual assault kit testing, but to also be an expert in sexual assault investigation. And it got me to thinking, in Utah, we've been involved in the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, where, honestly, it's a huge initiative. It's probably one of the most worthy projects I've ever been involved in. Granted, tiring. Granted, changed a lot of our approaches to sexual assault testing, which presented the challenges we've already discussed, but so worth it because we're changing not just the lab's approach, but everybody's approach, from law enforcement to the prosecutors. Part of that, we've decided to make our analysts be involved in the sexual assault kit meetings, in the training parts, and get them engaged. So yeah, do we sacrifice some lab productivity? Mm -hmm. We do, but we make them a better analyst at sexual assault investigation, and it, it's a better investment for the future. 
I look at this as not a one-year or two-year project for us, the, the Saki Initiative, but it's probably a 10-year project in Utah. And I think these people will be invested and engaged with it and see the worthiness of it all the way through. Yeah, so one of the other programs that RTI has is actually we're the training and technical assistance provider for Saki. And it's interesting because I, I was just expressing some frustration to them about kind of how some young people are trained in political science because they're trained about electoral politics and things like that, which are very, you know, sexy right now, right? Everyone wants to be involved in that. But really, I wish they would teach folks interagency or intergovernmental cooperation. The politics of that is how you make change. And Saki is a great example of it. Because if the crime lab analyst is off in their little bubble, and the police officer is off in their little bubble, and the sexual assault advocate community and prosecutor are each on their own little thing, then nobody has the bigger picture. And these problems fester in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. It's the people who know how to work across those domains and have them cooperate and get them into the chase of it, right? <laughs> that really make a huge difference on societal problems and social problems. Absolutely agree to that. And I see our people being able to leverage those relationships that they build there in these group settings to get them more engaged in the process and actually help make the Saki program more successful. For instance, if victim advocates were the only ones to show up to a meeting or they called the meeting, probably not many law enforcement are going to show up or not many prosecutors. But if we have our analysts who are engaged with law enforcement and the prosecutors, they reach out to them and say, hey, can you come? Can you come? You know, getting them involved in these discussions there, they've been able to leverage that and it's worked out pretty well. It's ingrained into the system more. So John, how do you make it so that an analyst feels comfortable, feels like they have the training, because not everybody can do that, right? And so how do we pull together the skills, the leadership skills, the communication skills, the attitude? You know, uh, that's a great question. And I'm going to be talking about this tomorrow during my segment. This is a leadership conference, right? And so people are talking about, you know, leadership skills. And there are, you know, there's a lot of leadership skills we talk about. The leadership skill to me that is the most important that never gets talked about because it's not a really sexy topic is the ability to facilitate conversation. I don't think that there is a more important skill for a leader than the ability to facilitate really meaningful conversations amongst the team. And so one of the things that you can do as a manager, if you are in a laboratory, for example, where you're really managing a lot of volume, throughput is a priority, and you run the risk of your people starting to feel a little bit disconnected from the soul of the work, one of the things that you can do is talk about it. Talk about these cases that come in. You can do it at staff meetings. You can have special, maybe monthly case discussion meetings where you talk about a case that came in and you discuss what people did in it. How did it affect, you know, what was the nature of the case? How did the work impact the investigation? What was the societal impact of the case? It's actually not that hard. I don't think, and I think Jay would agree, I don't think forensic science is going to suddenly change where throughput doesn't become important. You know, and right, I mean, the yeah. demand for our services. Right? Yeah, the <laughs> demand for our services is very high, and it's always going to be. But I think as managers, we can help kind of connect people, and we can do that by just having more conversations about the work that we're doing. I think that just having discussions and talking about cases, and as a lab director or as a unit supervisor, having the skills to facilitate conversation where you can let your people talk about this stuff. It makes them feel good, and it, it doesn't take a lot. So 
yeah, it's a big challenge, but I don't think it's necessarily a big solution that's difficult to implement. Mm -hmm. Actually, you hit on that topic. It's kind of been in the back of my mind. So I get all these ideas, mainly from, a lot of them from John. <laughs> <laughs> it's just he's got ideas man we have yeah, these, that's the problem we have these great cases to really engage people and, and not just people like that but I've thought about bringing in kind of a, as a side deal some people within our department to get a better understanding of of the importance of, of what we do but just having these case discussions so they get engaged in seeing this and letting them present their own cases and then being asked different types of questions from their peers or you know, from crime laboratory leadership, I think it's it's an interesting way to keep them engaged and motivated, and then focused, and, and as a, a remembrance of the seriousness of the work that we do. It's it's so incredibly important, and I think we lose that with a sterile kind of throughput environment that we're creating. And yes, John, you're right. We're not going back. We're into high throughput for you know future here. Haul. Yeah, long sure. haul. Yeah. Part of it's, um, you know, the technology, right? Because the technology has gotten really, really good for doing a lot of different kinds of high throughput analysis. But I mean, to me, that actually, if we were thinking about it right, would allow us to have analysts who were thinking more broadly because it's like, computers are really, really good at focusing in, <laughs> right? They don't care about the perspective. And that's really where the human mind, in terms of you know, making inference across cases and seeing pattern and being able to understand it in a different way, is so important. It almost seems like we're training people to be operators of computers as opposed to being forensic scientists. I want to call attention to play off what you just said, John, but also to emphasize a word that Jay used that is probably, I think, the operative word in this whole discussion is Jay described I think you used the word consulting with prosecutors and so forth. And there's absolutely no doubt that forensic science is a consulting business. Every scientist that works in our crime laboratories across the United States, around the world, they are consultants to the criminal justice system. And yeah, they may work in a public lab. And when we think of consultants, we think of private, self-employed types of individuals. But every scientist that's ever worked for me or that works for Jay, and when Jay and I were scientists, you know, we were consultants to the criminal justice system. So you're right, John, the technology is growing and it requires more technologically minded, scientifically minded people to get involved in this work. However, those consulting competencies are so important, the ability to you know, resolve disputes, negotiate solutions to problems, interact with people, uh, emotional intelligence, that kind of stuff. Forensic science can never just be a technological field it has to be a consulting field but I think we sometimes and I've made this mistake as a lab administrator forget that that yeah I got to develop the technical and scientific skills of my staff but I, I have to facilitate their development as good consultants because that's where the joy of the work really comes from I think several years ago I walked by and I heard one of my analysts talking to what I assumed was a one the uh, investigator and I thought hmm I think I need to talk to him about how to consult with the customer. <laughs> sure, right, yeah. Because it's, it is a big component of our work. And I think people are surprised, especially policymakers and, and other folks that think somehow we just run a test and it's plus minus and move on to the next part. They don't realize that. And I've had some people, when they discover that, they're shocked. It's like, what? These people are investigators. and they're making decisions and they're driving the case this way or that way and they didn't know that. They thought it was 
you know, take the swab, push a button, here's the result. And the investigator did the rest and was like, oh, no, there's an important gap there that I realized I wasn't educating some of my people in my department about what we did. The best way for them to do it was to come see, sit down, and when they discovered that, I think they were pretty blown away. You know, John, you remember you said I held the record for the podcast. One of them was unfortunate because of Jay Siegel's passing. Yeah. And th this was something that was always very important to Jay Siegel was the development of, of scientists. And I had conversations with Jay about this on many occasions. Is that if you think about, for example, a clinical laboratory where they're testing blood for cholesterol, that clinical lab, yes, they have the technology and the expertise to say that a person's blood has so many milligrams of cholesterol per milliliter, but they are not qualified to consult with the patient about whether or not they're at a risk for heart disease or if they should be on a special exercise program or if they should adhere mm -hmm. to a special diet. The physician does that. And so there's a place where the laboratory work starts and stops. And then there's a clear place where the consulting starts and stops with the doctor. In forensic science, one of the things that I have always loved about it and continue to love about it is that when it's done right, we work in a laboratory environment, but then we transition into the consulting role like Jay was talking about where we're interfacing with prosecutors and so forth. So we do the lab testing and the consulting. I just think that that's where the joy of the profession lies and that's where our people have to be developed. And I think we can do that. I think for the most part we do it pretty well, but I think we could do it better. You know, the issues with respect to cognitive bias and that kind of thing, I think it's more about having a conscious understanding of which decisions really are objective, even quantitative decisions, and which ones are part of the discipline and the SOPs and things like that. And then understanding outside of that how the implications of what you find are going to be communicated how they might play into other things that are not only happening in the case, but also happening within the analysis itself. Like, okay, now I know I need to go up and look at this other piece of evidence, or I need to put this evidence into DNA or whatever else it might be. And that's where what you're talking about can play a role. But it's important for folks to have the judgment and that kind of thing to understand those differences, where they need to have a more narrow view and where they need to have the broader view. But one of the things that I like about the bias discussion and the human factors discussion is that it forces individuals to be aware of their ego in many cases and to embrace their inherent human imperfection because if we walk around thinking that we can't make mistakes or that I can will myself to achieve perfection every time then I'm going to be the first person who's going to be at risk of making a mistake. So one of the things that we do at RTI internally is we talk about well how are you going to be developing your person a person. Yeah. And uh, we talk the 70-20-10. So 10% is training, 20% is mentorship, 70% is like experiential. You learn by doing. And that implies that as you're building your lab and managing your lab and leading it, that you're actually creating experiential opportunities for folks to be able to stretch themselves in this way. I mean, that's a very difficult task in an operational laboratory. What makes it easier in one sense is we're a smaller facilities and we're a small lab, we have less resources. So people are forced to have to do more and forced into those experiences. You know, they don't have always the luxury, I don't know if we call it a luxury or not, of, of just going to work and, and testing and doing casework. They've got to do the other things that sort of build on the whole discipline. So, uh, for instance, for a manager, you know, I don't really write the grants anymore in the laboratory. I have my other senior managers 
below the director level, they kind of write the grant. So they're getting involved in that, that whole process, and we're continuing to build that. Of course, we do it in a mentorship review kind of capacity. And then each one of the managers relies on maybe not the new people, but maybe some of the more journeyman level people in the laboratory. They get tasked with other duties as well. And we've kind of built that into a career development path. So they, they actually get points for this. So there's actually a desire and a, a reward there to kind of build that. So for instance, if they come and they do a paper on a project that they did in the laboratory, they get certain points for that for the promotional opportunity. Or if they were involved in an audit, we encourage that, hey, everybody's going to be an auditor, at least an internal auditor. If you want to do an external auditor, you know, that's also available depending on you know, your capability. And that. so the whole idea is we're trying to build that person to keep them engaged, to give them career advancement. And so there's plenty of experiences for them to, to get involved in if they stay long enough at the laboratory. So John, one of the things that you and Jay are really emphasizing in your talk is this idea of a tailored approach to the individual employee, right? And that's kind of what that does. It allows kind of that to be a natural outgrowth of how you're developing the individual. You're not just saying, okay, everyone's going to go into this training program over here. <laughs> right? We're going to tell you the five steps of leadership. Yeah. I mean, you need to have that too because people need to have some grounding. But tell me more about kind of this idea of tailoring the approach to the personal development to the individual and how that's a little different from what we might have been doing? Yeah, you know, maybe it's part of uh, the paramilitary police culture influence on forensic science, but it's very common to get kind of in a mindset as a leader to bark orders or to give direction. And in terms of tailoring your leadership practices to your people, one of the things that is really, really important is to include your people in these critical conversations. You know, whether you're talking as a group or you're talking one-on-one -on -one with one of your scientists is to discuss things that are important. So one of the examples that I'm going to give tomorrow is the difference between directorial or authoritarian type of management versus coaching style of management. So just a kind of a quick example. So a more dictatorial style, imagine that you have an employee, for example, that is having a problem coming into work late every morning, okay? And that can sometimes be common, particularly with younger employees that are out late at night having fun and that kind of stuff. You know, we've all been there. A more directorial kind of leader is going to say, look, you keep coming in 15 minutes late, cut it out. Or you need to look at the policy, stop doing that. A more modern kind of coaching style of manager is going to, instead of giving a direction, ask a question that forces the employee to think, such as, how do you think it affects your reputation in the laboratory when you come into work late? How do you think it affects the morale of your colleagues? Because when you ask that question, it forces that individual, instead of just saying, okay, I'll, I'll be more careful, it forces the individual to think. And when they think, they learn. And so that is where coaching style of management, particularly in today's day and age, with the needs and the preferences of young people today, they respond better to that. So tailoring your management and your leadership style to people requires you to engage them in meaningful conversation, and which goes back to that theme that what is it that you're talking about? What's important to you as a laboratory, but also what's important to you as a manager in your relationship with this particular employee? The second and final thing that I'll say just very briefly is that as a guy that's really taken a lot of interest in HR, in forensic science, I've always been dismayed by job descriptions in the laboratories being written specific to the technical specialty. 
where a job description is written as a DNA analyst or a fireman tool mark examiner, in my opinion, it should be written as a position for a forensic laboratory scientist because that sets the tone for getting people to think globally and to kind of set that mindset as being a consultant to the criminal justice system. So that's two examples, but I appreciate the question because it's so important. And Jay, is that, do you think that that's doable in a real crime laboratory operational setting? Yeah, I, and we try to take that approach as well, especially if you can find somebody too that you can identify a lot of their strengths, you know, and you can target them for a particular area. Some people are more geared for interacting with the uh, law enforcement officers. They can go out and they can teach a class that we might engage with our customers on, and they're just loved. Others are like, no, that's not my strength. But like John was talking about, just kind of dialoguing with them and getting to know your people, which is so, so important. Getting to know where their strengths are. Maybe they're more geared to working with developing the, the limb system a little bit better. You know, not saying to exclude them from teaching opportunities because you also want to develop them. And sometimes it takes a little bit of encouragement and coaching, and, you know, and a little push every once in a while to say, hey, we'd like you to try this, to do this. But uh, yeah, I think so. And again, I think it's important to do that if you want to keep them engaged in the laboratory and engaged in the profession. Well, yeah, you need to know them well enough to know which experiences and which stretch things you can do with them that are going to work, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So it's been a fantastic conversation, and I know we could talk about this for a while. We could. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's great stuff and very, very valuable. And I hope uh, folks uh, will take advantage of some of the work that uh, you've got uh, going on, John. And, and I know uh, folks very much respect the work that Jay is, is doing in, in Utah. Thank you all very much for being on Just Science. Thanks for having us, John. Thanks, John. And I'll just tell the listeners, please uh, make sure that you go in and give us a nice review and tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science. It's, it's just about the only place for a forensic science professional to really get fresh content every week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week on Just Science, we will have Dr. Cecilia Krause, formerly the Crime Laboratory Director for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.